positive blood test was a death sentence. Welcome to SBH Bronx Health Talk, produced by SBH Health System and broadcast from the beautiful studios at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. I'm Stephen Clark. From the early 1980s, when it was first identified, through the mid-1990s, the prognosis was dire. Almost uniformly, it was fatal, and very likely the end would not be kind. Those afflicted with the disease literally wasted away. Lesions often grew on their brain, causing dementia. Thrush, a painful fungal infection, ravaged their mouths, tongues, and throats, impairing their ability to eat or drink. A virus destroyed their retinas and their eyesight. Spots appeared on their skin, painless, but marking them as lepers of this insidious and stigmatizing condition. Hospitals in New York City were overwhelmed. Doctors, nurses, and funeral homes often kept their distance for fear of contagion. Government shied away from funding research for better treatments. Today, nearly four decades later, HIV-AIDS is a chronic and often manageable disease. Patients who are compliant with their meds can expect to live long and normal lives. Today's episode of SBH Bronx Health Talk departs from our regular format where we interview a featured clinician. Instead, we will examine the evolution of the HIV-AIDS crisis in New York City. Based on interviews held recently with medical experts at SBH Health System who have witnessed the journey up close. This included a roundtable discussion with five infectious disease specialists who started their medical training at the beginning of the epidemic, and an interview with the hospital's director of HIV, who has been on the front lines for nearly 30 years. Dr. Ed Telzak, chair of the Department of Medicine at SBH and an infectious disease specialist, remembers being a young physician at a Manhattan Cancer Center with a very large HIV population. At first, the symptoms left doctors bewildered and isolated. Eventually, the city's major health institutions introduced weekly intercity calls to discuss this puzzling illness. This helped them identify new risk groups and the importance of such things as donor screenings prior to blood transfusions. So I think one of the other sort of very strong um, memories I have is, so when I was at Memorial, a lot of people died from cancer, and a lot of people died from HIV. The people who died from cancer, their rooms were filled with family at the end. The people who died from HIV, they were alone. Yeah. You know, sometimes they had a partner. Yeah. Sometimes a crying mother from, you know, right. Nebraska would come. Um, but but people died alone. I and I think the staff yeah. felt an obligation to sort of be very involved in their in their death. A doctor Telzak treated his first AIDS patient when he was an intern training in Boston in 1981. The patient was a young gay man about his age who had been transferred from a hospital in Cape Cod. The more experienced infectious disease doctors, he recalls, didn't know what to make of the patient's symptoms. A lung biopsy showed the patient had pneumocystis, a serious fungal infection of the lung, and was placed on a ventilator. 
Doctors treated him with a daily injection of pentamidine, a medication so rare it needed to be flown in by the CDC and picked up at the airport. You know, so I remember giving him a, this daily injection in the ICU because he had failed Bactrim, and Bactrim was a known treatment for pneumocystis based on uh, ALL, the leukemia population in children um, who developed pneumocystis. And so Bactrim was a proven therapy, but he was getting worse. And so we gave him, I gave him these daily IM injections. Uh, the needle would come to me, and I'd give it to him in his thigh, and then in his right, and then in his left. And um, he probably, over the course of 10 days, uh, wound up dying. Um, and that was the beginning of a series of patients, um, all young gay men, uh, who came in with... Um, Many had pneumocystis, but also a range of other bizarre infections that m most very experienced ID docs had not seen. Within several years, local hospitals in New York City, as well as in Los Angeles and San Francisco, became inundated with HIV-positive patients. Even more heartbreaking, the doctors remember as medical students and residents visiting the pediatric units and seeing children with AIDS. Dr. Judy Berger, director of infectious diseases at SBH, was a medical student in Manhattan at the time and later a resident and fellow at hospitals in Brooklyn. I was in medical school from 76 to 80, and we didn't know there was, an, there was HIV, but we began to see, maybe about 78, we began to see IV drug users come in with uh, lymphadenopathy, with swollen glands. And we really didn't know when we would send them for biopsies. And there were all kinds of discussions around the table as to what could it be due to, and nobody knew. So I'm sure that we were seeing HIV. It was a disease, says Dr. Berger, initially focused around the four H's, homosexuals, Haitians, hemophiliacs, and heroin. Dr. Jonathan Samuels first saw patients dying of AIDS when he came to New York City at around this time to train. I remember there was one Christmas we went around and we gave everybody presents and there were just so many of them and they were so sick and they weren't going to get better. Um, it was, was so sad. People who I, and then AZT came out and they'd get better for a little while. You know, the hair would go, grow back, they'd gain weight, and they'd start to feel better, and then after a year or two, they'd peter out, and they'd get really sick and die. So these were people we knew pretty well. You know, we were seeing them a long time, young people, and then they, you know, in a year or two, they'd be dead. Recent research shows that the AIDS virus actually first landed in America a decade earlier, around 1971. It's now believed that the time between acquiring the infection and the onset of symptoms, on average, runs about 10 years. This contradicted a once accepted premise that an Air Canada male attendant was patient zero, spreading the disease through sexual partners along his route. The disease, it's since been determined, started in the Congo. It then spread as a result of a roaring sex trade, rapid population growth, and unsterilized needles by rail and river after the Congo gained its independence in 1960. 
Patients in the U.S. typically came to hospitals for care in the later stages of the disease. It was part stigma and part denial. After all, there was no rush to begin treatment. Once diagnosed as HIV positive, little could be done, remembers Dr. Telzak. People were not motivated to be tested because there was no treatment. Right. And so... And there was a lot of stigma. Uh, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of negative and very little right. positive. And, and so many of the patients we saw throughout the 80s already had AIDS by the right. time they were first tested. Right. And so their you know, median lifespan was you know, 12 to 18 months. And so median, meaning 50% of the people died within a year, but they presented very late. Um, I, you know, I think as time went on and treatments became better, there was much more motivation to be tested earlier. Um, so people started out at a much healthier um, position. But back then, I think people, they, they were identified as having HIV when they presented with an opportunistic infection. Right. The drug AZT gave patients and providers hope, but in retrospect, Dr. Telzak calls it no better than a C-minus drug. Dr. Michelle Dedoux, an infectious disease expert at SBH, remembers some of the drug's drawbacks when she trained in the Bronx. I remember with AZT, it was very difficult for them to tolerate. They used to have to take it every four hours, but the medication was so difficult for them to tolerate that it was almost equivalent to the disease. There were concerns before and after the deaths of these patients. In some cases, healthcare professionals didn't want to take care of them. Surgeons didn't want to operate on them, and funeral homes didn't want to bury them. Dr. Telzak says he began to feel as if he were a palliative care doctor. Dr. Berger, who started working at St. Barnabas Hospital in the early 1980s, remembers that precautions that were taken by staff. First started suggesting that people you know, or we, we were suggested too that people wear gloves. It wasn't accepted very readily. They felt that the patient would feel stigmatized. And it was really uh, an issue of educating people that you would wear them on everybody, right? There was no such thing as which patient had what or what did they look like? Or did they look like they had HIV or were they the kind of person, in quotes, that could have HIV? So until we got to the point of really gloves for everybody, um, there was a lot of um, a lot of resistance on doctors and nurses' part. I don't think as much on patients' parts. I think that as long as you wore it for everybody, it wasn't a matter of being stigmatized or, oh, I have something that you have to wear gloves for. There became more clarity among physicians when the New England Journal of Medicine published an article on June 7, 1981. One month later, on July 3rd, the New York Times ran its first article with the headline, Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals. By the end of 1981, the disease, better known then as GRID, for gay-related immunodeficiency, had affected at least 335 people and killed 136. In the mid-1980s, the NIH developed a consortium of clinical trials at several major New York City institutions. This led to incremental improvements in care with the arrival of individual drugs. 
Doctors did whatever it took to keep their AIDS patients alive. Dr. Carol Epstein, then a fellow in infectious diseases at a hospital in Lower Manhattan, remembers counterintuitively using steroids on patients during acute episodes of pneumocystis pneumonia. The steroids saved their lives by calming the inflammation. Yet they did nothing to restore their immune systems. Many patients lived a little longer, but it was like putting a Band-Aid on a hemorrhaging wound. Occasionally, a patient survived. It was like hitting the AIDS lottery. These elite suppressors, or long-term non-progressors, as they were called, were blessed with robust immune systems that withstood the infections. Dr. Epstein has treated one patient now for nearly 30 years. One of my patients in the private office I've been seeing since 1992. And, you know, he follows me, and he's still working. He's a super in a building in Yonkers. Over the next few years, organizations like ACT UP rang the bell in search of answers. Dr. Telzak, who at this time was also spending time at the New York City Department of Health, believes ACT UP helped save many patients through their efforts. Really the beginning of very intense patient advocacy and group advocacy. And, and I think ACT UP as much, you know, in retrospect, I mean, they were painting the ass when they were, you know, there. No one could do their work in the health department. <laughs> um, but, you know, they came in, they like took over the commissioner's office. I was down the hall, you know. But, but ultimately, they had a dramatic effect on, um, on the amount of investment that the federal government, yeah. I mean, Reagan, for example, and Bush, we're, we're not yeah. interested, you know, that it was like God's, yeah. you know, yeah. message. Yeah. Um, you know, the drug user, they, this was a marginalized population. Their mission was to get funding for treatment yeah. right. and to get treatment at earlier stages. The hell with, you know, three years of randomized controlled trials. You have a hint you, of a benefit, you give the drugs out. And, and in fact, they sped up. In the summer of 1996, hope surfaced. Scientists presented startling data at the International AIDS Conference in Vancouver. Revealed was the extraordinary power of new antiretroviral drugs. Called protease inhibitors, when used together they formed what became known as combination therapy, or HEART, for highly active antiretroviral therapy. Although not a cure, the drugs overnight altered the course of the epidemic. Doctors were better able to treat their patients' opportunistic infections. If we could get patients to take their medication, that we could, you know, then something better would come along. At first, there was a good deal of skepticism about the drugs, and the taste of the medication was nothing short than foul. Dr. Berger remembers how patients coated the inside of their mouths with peanut butter to soften the taste. The drug companies gave out water bottles with the pills because patients had to drink eight ounces three or four times a day. But those patients who had been wasting away started to gain weight and their T-cell levels improved dramatically. To Dr. Berger and the other doctors, this was a parting of the seas, manna suddenly delivered from heaven. The world changed. changed. The world changed. All our 
all our own, I'll speak for myself, yeah. our attitudes towards right. taking care we went to of the HIV together, patients. Why? IPAC. Because we it had something to yeah. offer. It yeah. wasn't just seeing patients and treating their, you know, opportunistic infections and trying to be positive and all of that. We all of a sudden had something to offer them. Patients who are HIV positive and facing death suddenly found themselves planning for the future. Ralph Beloys, director of HIV at the SBH Health System, has been on the front lines in treating HIV positive patients for 29 years. He's seen what it was like then and how it is today. The rates of infection in New York State, where treatment is paid for and social support is robust, continue to fall annually. Testing goals are continually surpassed. Those in the Bronx who get engaged in care in a timely fashion is at an all-time high at 84%. There are people who have been HIV positive for years and who take their meds every day. And people have gone from being disabled to being able and now work because there was that turnaround. And if you take your meds every day, we know that you'll do well and you can reverse some of the, da the damage that was done. So you do have a section of the population that will always be virally suppressed because they do adhere to their treatment plans and they do what's best for them. Then you're going to have a group of patients that is sort of, they sort of quasi take care of themselves. Like sometimes they're adherent and then they fall off a bit. Sometimes it's just a question of, you know, I've been so tired of taking these meds and I've been undetectable now for two years. Maybe I'll take a break. Not realizing that taking that break, like in a month, two months, your viral load could be back into the upper stratosphere. So you're just hurting yourself. And then you run the risk of those meds that have been keeping you virally suppressed for the last couple of years. You run the risk of as that medication is leaving your system and the virus is replicating again, it could become resistant to those medicines, right? Then you have the group that pay no attention to their care whatsoever because their psychosocial situation is such that they can't be adherent. And so a person who's out on the street getting high every day or a person who is maybe had an unmet, untreated mental health need that just doesn't take their meds or doesn't come to see the doctor. Or, for example, you see a lot of times that um, we don't see such great um, adherence in the transgender population. And it could very well be that their HIV status might be like fourth on their list of priorities. Maybe their first priority is getting those medications that they use for their hormones and things like that, or trying to negotiate life on the street because they're, they're a, a population that's, you know, abused and, um, and sort of pushed to the side. And so those social things are more important to them than taking their meds. But I will tell you that we're not seeing a large portion of the population any longer who aren't taking care of themselves. It is a small portion. The phrase treatment is prevention is pervasive today. Medication can not only virally suppress patients, reducing the amount of HIV in their blood to undetectable levels, but it can prevent the sexual transmission of the virus. PrEP, or pre-exposure prophylaxis, can lower the chances of individuals at high risk for HIV from getting the disease. 
Those who had an unprotected sexual encounter with someone whose HIV status is unknown can take a post-exposure prophylaxis to prevent an infection. Unlike in the 1980s, intravenous drug users today can walk into a pharmacy to get clean needles. Beloy says he still occasionally sees patients with T-cell levels like in the 1980s, patients with very compromised immune systems. This is mostly the homeless and the mentally ill. Yet the majority of HIV-infected patients he sees may never even get an illness diagnosis. I don't like to use AIDS that much any longer because our, our epidemic is predominantly HIV these days, right? I mean, not that people don't get AIDS. Um, if, you, if you're HIV positive and you've never taken a test and you don't know you have it and you show up with, you know, symptoms of a compromised immune system and you get an AIDS diagnosis, you get one, but you're going to find a lot of people who will never have an AIDS diagnosis. You'll have people who got tested early, got put on medication immediately. They're going to keep on, like a 20-year-old person who starts met, who's infected today and takes medication today will never even have an HIV illness diagnosis. They will only have an HIV infection as long as they take their meds every day. To date, more than 100,000 New Yorkers have died from AIDS-related causes. Both well-known people like Arthur Ashe and Perry Ellis and Halston, and those whose families chose to abandon them as they lay dying in isolated city hospital rooms. And while an estimated 125,000 HIV-positive people live in the city today, 20% of whom don't even realize they are infected, they all have a right to believe they now have a future. Dr. Berger met last week with a recently diagnosed HIV-positive patient. I just told somebody on Friday that they were newly diagnosed with HIV. My sentence is, you know what, I take care of a lot of HIV patients. You're going to live a long life, a normal life, if you take your medicine. In addition, she recently wished a happy birthday to another HIV-positive patient on his 80th birthday. Thank you for joining us today on SBH Bronx Health Talk. For more information on services available at SBH Health System, visit www.sbhny.org. And thank you for joining us.